Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground of mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is Revelation 22, verses 1 through 6. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crop of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no be more night. They will not need a lamp of light of the sun to light the way, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me that these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. My guest today, it's David McElvaney. He is the author of The Intentional Legacy, which is a very thoughtful memoir of the musings and the power of legacy and what it means to create a meaningful family culture. David, I'm thrilled you're here with us today. What I would love to know from you right away is, what does it mean to be intentional? Well, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to be here and and share a few ideas with you. Um, Intentionality is something that I think just marks a decision process where you are designing an outcome as opposed to allowing a random outcome to occur. Um, So to be intentional is is to somehow engineer or thoughtfully process uh, what may be an outcome. How do you make that happen? Um, How do you sort of inform the inputs that go into it. And so, yeah, as it applies to legacy, legacy is something that we all are going to leave. It's an inescapable concept. Uh, but there's different kinds of legacies, and some of them are, are accidental. Some of them may even be embarrassing. But I think we may look back at some lives and say, now that's something that worked. And I could see there were design elements. There were choices, deliberate choices made, either choices of, yes, I'm going to do this, or choices of, no, I'm going to limit and not do that, and it it created an outcome. So for me, intentionality is is sort of that starting point of mapping out what you want the future to be as it as it applies to legacy. So I know that you come from a family of intentionality. Your father was a leading provider of investment solutions. And uh, age six, you're delivering your first speech of inflation atop the coffee table wearing your three-piece <laughs> suit. You had this from childhood, didn't you? This sort of um, provocative knowledge thought path. We had a lot of conversations around the dinner table that would be atypical, um, whether it was geopolitical conversations or conversations relating to economics and monetary policy. Uh, as you mentioned, at age six, giving my first speech on inflation, um, I got to watch and listen and learn uh, from a remarkable man, and I continue to. Um, but it's, it's 
those patterns that were set early on that are a part of my father's enduring legacy and also something that I continue to perpetuate, choosing the very best of that, maybe leaving some things behind, but choosing the very best of that to continue on into the next generation. When you use that word legacy, I think people sometimes think, well, I don't have a legacy to live because I don't have a bank account or I don't have this um, career that's been through generations of my family. What can a legacy be that some person can leave once they've passed away for their family, which isn't necessarily money-based? Yeah, this was one of the major efforts with the book, The Intentional Legacy, is to really redefine the scope of what it is we're talking about, because too often it's limited to financial resources and a number of accounts or acres or square feet or what have you. We think of real tangible assets as the evidence of legacy, of hard work, and of some real bequest. But to me, there's far more to it, and and this deals with the intangible side of things, um, where I, I guess... The, the place I started was going to my grandfather's funeral and seeing at this little Methodist church down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, a church that was packed to the gills. There was, there was no room. There was no room inside. There was another hundred people waiting outside to get in. And uh, he was a 12-time uh, state champion football coach and, um, and principal. And this was, he was a principal at a high school back in the day where discipline was... Um, I, I don't, I, we, it was corporal. It was, it was very real, and, and what in some senses may in today's context be severe. But here was hundreds of men who were lined up crying over the loss of a man who had impacted their lives forever, set them straight, set them on a course of, of understanding who they were and, and the world that they lived in. And to me, I, I, I saw legacy in the lives that were impacted, not in the real estate that he left. <laughs> that didn't even matter. Money didn't matter. What mattered was the way that he impacted lives. So you see courage and you see the character that it takes to be a person who embraces forgiveness and, 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 and loyalty and solidarity. These are all aspects of the intangibles that we either cultivate in our lives or we don't. And they do impact every relationship that we're in. And I think they are a far more profound uh, form of legacy. And they're not only accessible to those with a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or ten million dollars. Everyone can craft an amazing legacy, uh, regardless of your socioeconomic status. I love that. I think that's really tangible for people. Something I also found in the book that was really, um, I had to stop and really sit back and think about it because I thought it was quite realistic. You have this idea of the four generational take on family work ethic and that idea of we go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and we do it in four generations. And if you can clearly explain that to listeners, because I thought that was really helpful in my thoughts around this. What I find fascinating is this is not a, a, a U.S. or North American issue, but, you know, in, in, in Asia, they call it the rice paddy to rice paddy issue, or in Europe, the clogs to clogs, or stalls to stalls. The shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve conundrum or problem is that one, what one generation knows from hard work, from experience, from, from the life lessons that are only got through real challenge and hardship, um, they can easily be lost 
in translation through the second and third and fourth generations. So you could chalk it up to collective amnesia. You might even look at it in terms of generational rebellion or differentiation. Um, but really what it is, is not doing things the way they were done before. Yeah, think of work ethic as, as kind of a, just a, a, an example. One generation works hard, builds something from nothing. The next generation has something to begin with and maybe doesn't have to work quite as hard. So they don't appreciate what it takes to get what they have in the same way as the first generation who had to fight and scrape for every penny did. By the time you get to the third generation, again, there's a loss of messaging. And, and this is where, you, again, you go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, where you, you start with the hardworking generation. It's kind of a story of dissipation. And I think two things factor in here. One, you can have externalities, external things, which, uh, you know, maybe it's cultural issues, um, maybe it's things like inflation or, or collapse in, 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 uh, in the financial markets. Those are external threats. But the internal threats are the things where at the level of culture, there was not a patterning or replication of the good qualities that allowed for the success of those earlier generations. I met a family in Argentina who at one point had 100,000 acres, a large tract of land, very productive farmland, and the gentleman who was sort of the, the, the godfather, if you will, uh, of this family, uh, he was hardworking, he was sophisticated, he understood business, no college education, but very, very understanding about humanity and business and hardware. He knew how to organize people. The second generation didn't want to work quite as hard on the farm. They built houses in downtown Buenos Aires. The third generation it was informed by the experience of the second generation who had traveled to Europe and had seen the world. The third generation wanted to have houses in Europe. Lo and behold, through the inflationary debacles that they saw in Argentina and then the dissipation of wealth, I was sitting here with this man in Argentina who was working a day labor job. <laughs> and imagine going from a vast fortune to being back to having to earn it the old-fashioned way, one, one dollar at a time. I mean, it really was uh, kind of the typical story, I think, for me of the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves problem. The way you write it out, the phenomenon is really clear. And I'm just going to just encapsulate it quickly here. So you write first off about the shirt sleeve generation. It's basically the first or the founder generation. They start from scratch. They roll up their sleeves and they get to work. Then comes along the second generation. And this is the spendthrift generation. They leverage the benefits of their parents. They move into whatever their version is of the nice neighborhood. They eat at better foods. They sort of feel like this is what their life is. The third generation, we have the cynical generation. And this is a generation with few core values and even less vision inherited from the parents because they're one step removed from seeing the hard work. And then we go into the shirt sleeve generation once again, the fourth generation. It's back to the beginning with nothing. It's painful to see that because it is a cyclical situation. How do we break free and create legacy? Yeah, I think this is one of the, and again, we're, we're focusing a little bit on wealth, but I think this applies to spiritual legacy as well, where, you know, when someone comes to faith, it's usually through um, personal experiences and deep revelation of, of who they are uh, in relation to God. And, you know, there, there are some 
differences between a first generation in salvation and a second generation who perhaps grew up in a quote-unquote religious context. And you can play out that same pattern in terms of founders, spendthrift, cynical, and shirt sleeve as you look at the kinds of conversations that are had within the family. The founder conversation has such a real and tangible view of their salvation. Perhaps the spendthrift generation also experiences some degree of gratitude, but by the time you get to the cynical or shirt sleeves generation in terms of the spiritual, you're really talking about people who are asking questions don't necessarily appreciate the context that they were raised in, the blessing of, of, of being in a Christian home, and, um, and they can move away from faith. And so, you know, oftentimes people will say, oh, well, my kids went off to a secular university. That's where they lost their faith. No, quite frankly, quite frankly, the loss of spiritual moorings and is, is because they didn't have a clear identity to begin with. They didn't know who they were. The conversations around the dinner table probably weren't robust enough for them to understand the depth uh, of, of what they have as, as believers or, or, or the richness of the heritage that they're a part of. My guest today is David McLevaney. He's the author of The Intentional Legacy. In his book, he talks about the God of your vineyard. And if I may read, it says, there are people who spend the better part of their lives looking for the perfect bottle of wine. Instead of perfection, my interest is in personality. Every bottle has one. Its personality is found not just in the finished product, but in the story of the journey from vine and grape to bottle and cork. It's all about the journey. Isn't it, David, though? It's really all about the journey. It is about the journey, and I think one of the critical aspects of of legacy formation is to appreciate that each family's journey is going to look a little bit different. There is no sort of cookie-cutter approach here. Look at the resources that you're dealing with and, and build off of that. You know, when you're dealing with wine, they call it terroir, where the the, the grapes are influenced by the very soil that they come from. And, And the dirt makes a difference. Where you are makes a difference. One of the things I love exploring in the book is is how the choices we make in terms of where we raise our families have such an impact on what the dynamics are for those families. My kids think nothing of going out and skiing in the backcountry with me and, and building snow forts and going rock climbing and doing things that, frankly, for city folk would seem absurd. But it's a natural expression of the venue that we're in. It, 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 is, it is a part of the terroir, and their lives will be informed by the place that we grew up and the choices that we made, the ways that we chose to spend our time. And the journey is very much uh, a, part of, a part of their formation, uh, spiritual formation, emotional formation, intellectual formation, um, and very much a part of the ultimate outcomes in terms of legacy. Terroir. Terroir. I just wanted to say that. It sounds so neat when you said it. It sounds fun to say it, too. What would you say to somebody when they came to the end of life and they said, you know, I just don't have a perfect family. I have a crisis. It seems like I can't really redeem any legacy. What kind of help could you point somebody in? I think if we're all honest, we would say nobody comes from a perfect background. I mean, we're talking about degrees of dysfunction, more or less, but that's more or less a constant because we're dealing with imperfect human beings uh, in the context of relationship where, you know, sometimes we don't choose the best for others. We prioritize self and, and damage relationship and damage process. But I think when you're looking about 
when you're talking about legacy, there's always this issue of what trajectory are you on? And there is never a point, never a point where we can fatalistically say, because of the trajectory I'm on, things are going to be this and such. We can always choose a trajectory change. We can always choose something different. If it's the last day of your life, you can choose kindness. If it's the last weeks of your life, you can choose generosity and and to be someone who's actively listening and lovingly engaged. It doesn't matter what has been in the past. We have today and we have every moment in front of us that we can still impact. And so whether you're a 22-year-old getting started in a new family or a 45- to 60-year-old coming into midlife and saying, what is next? We're an 85-year-old saying what is next. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. We still choose the trajectory from that point forward, and that's where I think legacy is, is, is really kind of an empowering concept. You, you don't have to relive the mistakes of an earlier generation. You can reset the trajectory, and, and I, I think that's one of the things we have to take ownership of and take responsibility for. I love your message. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And it really fits all sizes. And it's so fascinating because you're somebody who has a wealth management company. You're also a CEO of a financial company as well. And you have a podcast too, your weekly commentary. You're dealing so much with wealth in the monetary portion, yet you're highly a robust man of the spiritual. In your practices, how much does spirituality come into the conversation when it comes to legacy, when it comes to wealth management? How can we better tie that in? So where we're dealing with, you know, there's tithing to the church, or there's maybe giving money on a more maybe religious realm. How can we tie our spiritual legacy into all that too? I I think probably the way that it comes into our practice the most is by reframing priorities. We we live in a world that is growth-obsessed, and money-obsessed. We prioritize and we worship at the altar of fame and fortune. And to realize that money is a useful tool and it's something that can be a blessing to future generations, but it can equally be a curse. And, and beginning to look and, and just ask the question, what is more important to you? Your job, your profession, your, your, your professional trajectory, or the relationships that are around you? Where are you ministering most um, effectively into? Uh, the relationship with your wife and your children? Or are, are you so distracted by some vision of changing the world that you've forgotten that people got, the people that God put right in front of you to love uh, most intensely and, and, and most effectively? So I think a lot of it is reframing, because again, you know, we work with money. That's our job. We have two different businesses, a precious metals brokerage company, an asset management company. And so money is the conversation, and growth is what's expected of us. And yet, when it comes to legacy, these are things that pass away. They, They really... In the end, they don't matter. It's, it is relationship, and, and it's the way that we grow um, as individuals. It's far, far more important. Bringing it back to basics here in your book, you do mention the decision to marry wisely and how that really is a big root of creating the legacy early on. There's two decisions that are absolutely critical, and one of those is, uh, for me, certainly coming to faith, because you're talking about a set of ideas that inform everything else that I do. Um, the priorities are set on the basis of, of a worldview, and and so people who um, have 
chosen some other faith or, or some other, their life is still informed by a set of assumptions. And my assumptions are biblically based, um, but such a critical thing because it impacts everything else. It impacts absolutely everything else. The only second most important, as you mentioned, is, is this issue of, of marriage because it impacts uh, everything in daily life. And, and, and who you are doing battle with, who you are adventuring life, uh, who you're going through the adventures and the struggles of life with. I mean, this is, this is again, like, it's just absolutely critical. Um, it can be one of the greatest distractions, um, you know, marrying poorly. Or it can be one of the greatest blessings where your efforts, and what you do as, as a family are magnified because of the synergies involved. Um, and I, I, am, I am amazingly blessed. I am amazingly blessed. A woman with an, an intensely bright mind, uh, an intensely compassionate heart, skills and talents that I, <laughs> I can't even... It's just not, in, not in my set of skills and talents. So the complementarity, um, man, I, I, it, it is... It, one of the most important decisions that you can make in life. So now I have complementary and also terroir. This has been really <laughs> educational from just my linguistic standpoint. Thank you for that. How do you feel homeschooling your children has helped with your legacy? Homeschooling is something that um, I would describe as an accommodation for uh, the work that we have to do and the travel that's required. Um, I think there's many ways to approach education that can be very effective. Um, this works for us because our clients are spread out all over the country and all over the world. So when I travel, which I'm probably on the road two to three months out of the year, I don't want to be gone from family. I don't want our practices, the daily decisions that we make and the routines that we have, I don't want them to suffer from my absence. And these are hard lessons that I learned from my dad because he was traveling three out of four weeks in the early stages of our business formation. And we paid a price as a family. Many of the dysfunctional aspects that I talk about in the book came from his fighting for survival in the context of business. And so homeschooling has allowed for us to be together and for us to have more time around the breakfast table, more time around the dinner table, and more of those day-in and day-out conversations that allow for us to process things, everything from how they're doing internally from a, an emotional and spiritual aspect to ideas, whether it's popular culture or politics and economics, we've set the context for conversations to happen. And it actually has more to do with schedule than it does with educational priority. Now, unfortunately for them, they have two parents that studied philosophy, and we have a pretty clear philosophy of education, and we do get to express that in the context of homeschooling. So it's probably a little bit more rigorous, but the benefits educationally, I think, pale in significance to the benefits that we gain relationally um, from the choice of homeschooling. Well, from my naive point of view, it looks like the legacy you're giving them is that inheritance of love. I hope so. I mean, there's, there's um, a commitment, regardless of imperfection, to relationship. We talk about in the book that just relationship is. My son will always be my son. My daughter will always be my daughter, regardless of the choices that they make. They may choose a course in life which I don't approve of. 
I am their father, and my love does not know a boundary, and it's not conditioned on the basis of their choices or their behaviors. So yes, lo- love is a, a cornerstone for our home. Um, teaching them how to make wise choices is a part of the priority for us as, as parents. I think it's one of the roles that we have is to teach them how to process information and prioritize choice. Um, but you know, I think love is, 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 a, is a big part of, of what we hope they experience at home. We have just a few minutes here. I wanted to ask you about the large number of books that are listed in your bibliography for further reading. I know these writings are real supportive of the concept of the intentional legacy. What would you say one of your favorite books are? Or if you can give the listeners something maybe you think that would really bless their lives to pick up and read. Oh, boy. Besides your book, um, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... I this may not even have anything to do with the topic, but I should mention it um, because it's a book that I come back to every few years. Um, G.K. Chesterton wrote a book years ago called Orthodoxy. The subtitle used to be The Romance of Faith. And I, I just, I, there's something about the way Chesterton writes that reminds me of the bigness of God and of his plan and what we've been invited into. And, and a part of it is his language, a part of it is the fluidity of his language, and, and a part of it is just perspective. Um, and I need that perspective. Sometimes the smallness of religion, the smallness of, of, of kind of church life, I forget the vastness and the grandness of the kingdom purpose. And that's a book that I will read every few years, and I read it over and over again. I, it's one of the few. Um, that is on kind of a short list of, I'll read it again and again and again. I don't think that's exactly where you were hoping to go, but uh, it's, it's a very important book to me. What would you say your legacy is? Uh, what is my legacy? My legacy is being crafted every day by the little choices that I make, because in my view, legacy is an aggregation of all the little things. It's, it's not... You know, having endowed a building with a million dollars or having created a fortune of a hundred million dollars, these, these are aspects, but they really aren't the important things. The important things are the small choices we make in aggregate, which reflect our values and reflect our priorities and reflect the things that we are most deeply committed to. And so uh, my legacy is unfolding as I make choices to prioritize my wife and kids, as I make choices to impact the lives around me, as I make choices to sit with a friend and pray um, about this or that issue in their life, these are the issues of legacy because they reflect our priorities and values. And that, to me, is one of the freeing things about legacy. It has nothing to do with the balance sheet. Maybe in some small aspect it does. Um, but these intangibles, that's, that's what I want to pour myself into. It's fascinating to me that you're an economic investigator, but you sort of are a a personal spiritual investigator in the sense how we can tie all these portions of importance in our life all together. And what's your last thought here about somebody getting on the correct spiritual train who might be ready to check out of this world and really might not think they have much of a spiritual legacy to leave behind? You know, I I think that... um there has to be some generosity applied to um, kind of a look back on your life. And, and, and you can always count the things that we're missing. Um, but, you know, when you look at a, a, a story like It's a Wonderful Life, 
you, you know, we watch that every year at Christmas time. And it's just such a solid reminder that we have no idea the ways in which we've impacted the world and, and the lives of people around us. And God put us in this place for a reason. And, and we are doing his work, whatever we are doing. Our presence is, is, is very real and should leave a tangible impact. If you can't account for that, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. If you can only count the things that you missed and only count the regrets, I can promise you, I can promise you, just like George Bailey, he couldn't count the places that he wanted to travel to. But in the end, he wasn't the one who could really count the benefit. It was the people all around him who would say, you changed my life. You never knew it, but you made all the difference in the world. Just when I needed it, you were there. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you to my guest, David McIlvaney. He's the author of The Intentional Legacy. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.